0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the competition for the vote of American workers, with Biden on the picket line with striking UAW workers, and Trump at a non-union venue appealing to UAW members past and present. Joining us is Kate Andreas, a professor of law at Columbia Law School, whose scholarship probes the failures of U.S. law to protect workers' rights, examines the efforts of historical and contemporary worker movements to transform legal structures and analyzes how labor law and constitutional governance might be reformed to enable greater political and economic democracy. Previously, she worked for several years as an organizer with the Service Employees International Union, clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the United States Supreme Court, served as an associate counsel and special assistant to President Barack Obama, and as Chief of Staff in the White House Counsel's Office and served on President Biden's Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. Then we look into the current rise in anti-Semitism and the role that conspiracy theories play in our politics and speak with Mike Rothschild, a journalist and conspiracy theory expert whose work has examined scams, frauds, moral panic, conspiracy theories and how their impact has gone from the online world into everyday life. He has testified to Congress on the threat of election disinformation and is the author of The Storm is Upon Us, how QAnon became a movement, cult, and conspiracy theory of everything. And his latest book just out is Jewish Space Lasers, the Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. Then finally, with the State Department revealing that 60,000 of its emails were hacked along with the emails of the Secretary of Commerce, We will assess the state of the government's cybersecurity with Dr. Herb Lin, a Senior Research Scholar for Cyber Policy and Security at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He is Chief Scientist Emeritus for the Computer Science and Telecommunications Board at the National Research Council of the National Academies and in 2016 served on President Obama's Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity. He was also a professional staff member and staff scientist for the House Armed Services Committee, where his portfolio included defence policy and arms control issues. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Kate Andreas, who is the Professor of Law at Columbia Law School, whose scholarship probes the failures of US law to protect workers' rights, examines the efforts of historical and contemporary worker movements to transform legal structures, and analyzes how labor law and constitutional governance might be reformed to enable greater political and economic democracy. Previously, she worked for several years as an organizer with the Service Employees International Union, clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the United States Supreme Court, served as Associate Counsel and Special Assistant to President Barack Obama, and as Chief of Staff in the White House Counsel's Office, and served on President Biden's Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kate Andreas. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, it's... One of the things that that I find puzzling about the US, having been born in Australia, which has strong labor, has a labor party, strong unions, uh, also compulsory voting, which means over 90% of people vote. And I think that reflects in the sense that it's more of a social democracy than the US is. Why do you think that the US has not developed along the lines of social democracy as other? as a pro-labor European countries have, and I just mentioned Australia, it seems in many ways, compared to the, the countries that I just mentioned, uh, that the U.S. has more of a tradition of hostility towards labor as opposed to empowering labor.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair description. I think there are a number of reasons that contribute to that dynamic. One is that in the 1930s, after massive strikes and labor unrest, workers in the United States won significant rights, um, including the right to organize unions, the right to bargain, the right for minimum wages. Um, and so in that at that moment, the US seemed to be moving in the direction of a social democracy or closer to where a lot of the European countries were. Um, and in the immediate aftermath of those legal reforms, lots and lots of workers throughout the country organized and we saw a significant increase in wages in wages and um, significant improvement in living standards for working people. But by the late 1940s, business in the US had mobilized and um, was able to change the law in ways that really significantly eliminated or significantly reduced the possibility of organizing more unions and organizing further. So one one explanation for the difference is a labor law regime that significantly favors capital. Another is the role that courts play in the US. Uh, the US has a very strong system of judicial review and the courts historically have been quite hostile to unions. They've interpreted the law in ways that are beneficial to uh, companies um, and they've been pretty active. It, historically, they were pretty active in enjoining worker strikes. So I don't think the difference is that workers here don't want unions or don't want a more generous um, set of, uh, of, of public benefits. Um, if you look at recent polls, Um, about 70% of workers would like to have a union. But in fact, only about 6% of private sector workers do.
0: Well, Senator Whitehouse, of course, is arguing that there's been a plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court more recently. And particularly, of course, Justice Gorsuch, he essentially auditioned for the Supreme Court in a ruling uh, known as the frozen truck driver, where He was the only judge on the appeals court that ruled that the truck driver whose rig broke down in the dead of winter should not have abandoned the rig and should have, in effect, frozen to death. So would you agree with Senator Whitehouse that we've reached a point where there has been a plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court, largely by one man, in fact, uh, Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society?
1: I agree that the current Supreme Court is extremely hostile to workers and workers' rights, and that that is a product in part of an organized campaign by business and by hard-right conservatives to take control of the court. And you can see the court's hostility to workers across a range of cases, from cases concluding that workers don't have a right to proceed collectively in litigation through class actions, uh, to cases um, more recently where the court concluded that um, California couldn't have a statute that allowed organizers to go onto farms to talk to workers about um, organizing unions that that statute constituted taking under the Fifth Amendment, and they'd have to, uh, as written, was unconstitutional um, to cases involving discrimination against workers. So in there's no question that the conservative majority on the Supreme Court is very hostile to workers.
0: So did you then, Kate, do you see, um, I don't don't want to be pessimistic here, because there's been a change in the attitude towards Labour in the country, and I think something like 75% of Americans support the UAW strike, and uh, just a few days ago, uh, President Biden joined in with the uh, picket line in Detroit, and he declared, just to to quote uh, Biden, Wall Street didn't build this country. The middle class built this country. The unions built the middle class. That's a fact. Let's keep going. You deserve what you've earned. And you've earned a hell of a lot more than you're getting paid now. So that's a pretty ringing endorsement for Labour, is it not?
1: That is a ringing endorsement. And in fact, this is the first time that a sitting U.S. president has joined an active picket line. So I think it's an incredibly important gesture in support of the workers. And it reflects, as you, as you said, the overwhelming support of Americans for the UAW and for this strike. I, don't, I think that there's actually a reason to be quite optimistic about the future of the labor movement and the future of the country. We have seen a series of, of, of efforts among workers to stand up for their own rights, um, and to stand up for a different vision for what workers are entitled to in this country. Um, and the fact that their efforts of gaining so much public support is really important. At the same time, we're also seeing important changes at the Labor Board, which is the agency that governs um, collective bargaining and unionization in an effort to kind of breathe new life into the statute and to let workers really have the right to organize under the law. And then finally, there's efforts at reforming the law so that it would actually support workers' rights to organize and enable bargaining and enable sectoral bargaining like exists in the rest of the industrial world.
0: But the PRO Act will do much of what you just outlined, Kate. What's the fate of the PRO Act? Obviously, we've got an insane situation now where a handful of radical right Republicans in the House are about to shut down the government. So not exactly an opportune moment to get anything passed.
1: Right. I think um, it's unlikely that the PRO Act will pass in the short term, because just as you were mentioning that the Supreme Court has been captured in large part by business interests, business interests also have a chokehold over Congress. um, And the combination of the extensive influence of the hard right Republicans in Congress and veto points, including the filibuster Um, make it very hard to pass legislation. But um, things change. And if you look back over history, there were other points in our history where it seemed similarly impossible to pass legislation. And with significant enough organizing efforts, that picture changes. And I'm hopeful that we're on the precipice of another moment where uprisings among workers and American citizens generally to say, look, we don't think it's fair that the auto companies received a massive uh, bailout and are experiencing record profits and those aren't shared with workers, that we want a different kind of vision for the United States where working people are middle-class, where you can work hard, send your kids to college, own a home um, and um, share in the benefits of industry. And to the extent that that view is really widely shared and that there's increasing strike actions and increasing organizing actions, the politics will shift. Um, so I'm not hopeful that the PRO Act will pass in the next year or two, but I am hopeful that there can be major changes along these lines in the future.
0: But one of the things that Biden pointed out, and others, of course, have pointed out, is the disparity... Between what the CEOs of the big three auto companies are paid and what the average worker is, I mean, we're talking about three, three to four hundred times more. And in other sectors of our economy, the ratio is even higher. Of all the countries in the world, I think the United States has the most embarrassing, I, I would say, disparity in the ratio between what workers get paid and what CEOs are paid.
1: That's right. So, for example, the General Motors CEO made, I think, about thirty million dollars in twenty twenty two. That's over three hundred and sixty times what the median GM employee makes, and that's just not acceptable if we want to have a democracy where um, where we are one country and where the people who do the work share in its benefits. But in order to change that dynamic, we need um, a different system of labor law. We need a system where workers are organized. Uh, One of the things that reduces economic inequality that studies have shown to be most productive in reducing economic inequality is the extent of collective bargaining coverage. So in countries where the vast majority of workers are covered by collective bargaining agreements, you see much lower rates of inequality. But that's not the only reform, right? We also need campaign finance reform and tax reform and other kinds of reforms um, that would prevent that kind of gross inequality that is threatening, I think, the future of our democracy.
0: But it's almost a kind of mindset that has to be changed. It's a cultural issue, isn't it, Kate, that the American people perhaps have been brainwashed into thinking that wealthy people uh, deserve their wealth and that working people don't have any rights. For example, the business schools like Wharton and Harvard, they teach these sort of metaphors like slash and burn and take no prisoners. I mean, look at the, the rise of Donald Trump, who got a lot of working-class votes because a lot of people thought he's a billionaire, which, of course, is, he's a fraud, but they thought he was a billionaire and therefore he was more qualified. Is there anything, any change underway to explode that myth that people that are wealthy, or I guess you, you could refer to it as wealth worship? And mm-hmm. uh, I don't understand why people are so in th- in the thrall of wealthy people, and particularly noc- obnoxious people like Donald Trump and Elon Musk.
1: I think there is a beginning of a shift in that respect. We're seeing far more support for unions for increasing the minimum wage. We see even in you know the very most Republican states ballot initiatives that proposed to increase the minimum wage are passing consistently. Um, we see, you know, as we talked about far more support for unions than even just 10 years ago, see the business schools and the law schools shifting in their curriculum and uh, foregrounding more of the problems of economic inequality and thinking about um, changes. But another problem, I don't think the problem is just cultural. I think one of the problems um, facing working class voters, particularly in the Midwest is that for many years, Um, neither party was particularly aggressive in supporting their interests. And so there wasn't really an alternative offered, um, an alternative political program to support working people's interests. Um, and when that happens, people just get frustrated with politics and believe that there's no hope for change. So I'm not sure that the problem is necessarily that people don't want change or that there's a culture that's opposed to feeding, uh, treating workers fairly, but rather that the uh, it seems politically implausible for so long. And I think that's beginning to shift.
0: Well, I mentioned earlier the plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court. The same people behind the plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court are also, in effect, behind Citizens United, which has changed our politics to the point where they're entirely money-driven and that our legislators uh, spend their days dialing for dollars, asking for money. And if you have a political system entirely dependent upon money, it therefore favours those with money. So how much is that a part of this story of, of the decline of labour and and the... And the capture of, of the Supreme Court by the plutocrats. In other words, there's a lot of criticism of the Clinton era and neoliberalism. And one of the reasons, I think, why things changed was that because of the declining power of labor, down to about 6 or 7% of the workforce is unionized, the unions didn't have the money to support the Democratic Party to have parity with the Republicans who nat- have a natural fit with corporations and the wealthy. Is that a factor, in other words, did having to sort of move to Wall Street to get money because the unions didn't have the the kind of cash that uh, the Republicans have, is that a factor here? Has that changed the landscape given how money dominates our politics?
1: Yeah, I think there's no question that the extent to which money dominates our politics shifts both political parties such that they're to be more sympathetic to wealthy interests um, and that's particularly true of the republican party and that played a a really pernicious role um, earlier in the in you know over the course of the last decades i'm not sure that all the blame can be laid at citizens united because i think it's actually started um quite um quite a while before citizens united Um, but citizens united certainly plays a, a role in that in that dynamic so if there's unlimited amount of spending going into the political process that is going to advantage business and it doesn't matter how big unions get they're never going to be able to compete with with um, capital in terms of the amount of money that is spent um if 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 one is allowed to um, spend unlimited amounts in in elections and that's that's and the supreme court has has held that it, um the first amendment protects that kind of political spending in a way that um, really makes no sense. It, it undermines democracy and it undermines the ability to engage in free and fair expression. Um, and so that is a um, doctrine that absolutely has to change.
0: So just in the last uh, couple of minutes then, Kate, since you have such an impressive resume and have, and have worked in government and on the Supreme Court uh, and work for President Obama and in the White House uh, Counsel's Office and on President uh, Biden's Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. We mentioned uh, how Biden is turning things around and made a strong stance, a physical stance, in favour of Labour, which no other president has done by joining a picket line. And clearly, the people that he's appointed, particularly on uh, the Department of Labour, a huge change. I mean, look at the people that Trump appointed as Secretaries of Labor that creep who helped out Epstein, Acosta, and Scalia's son, who his entire political career is devoted to slamming labor. And then now you've got Donald Trump trying to woo the United Auto Workers by showing up at a non union shop sponsored by the Right to Work uh, Foundation, which is just zealously anti-Labor. So is there a way to level the playing field in terms of the kind of people that are being put in these important positions, particularly as uh, Secretaries of Labor and also on the NLRB? I
1: think when you compare what Biden has done with the National Labor Relations Board and with Department of Labor to what Trump did, you really see the stark difference between um, between the, the two um, presidents and, and their commitment to workers. So the Biden um, Department of Labor Labor and the Biden NLRB have been staunch advocates for increasing wages, protecting health and safety, protecting workers' rights to organize so that employers can't un, um, illegally fire workers when they try to organize unions or can't refuse to bargain illegally. And the Trump board, the opposite of that made it easier at every in every way for employers to avoid bargaining to repress union organizing so who fills the government what kind of vision people who fill the government hold is critical to um to how the law gets enforced and to um to what happens on the ground
0: well kate i thank you for joining us i appreciate it thanks so much and again, I've been speaking with Kate Andreas, who is a professor of law at Columbia Law School, whose scholarship probes the failures of U.S. law to protect workers' rights, examines the efforts of historical and contemporary worker movements to transform legal structures, and analyzes how labor law and constitutional governance might be reformed to enable greater political and economic democracy. Previously, she worked for several years as an organizer with the Service Employees International Union, clerk for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court, serves as associate and special assistant to President Barack Obama and as chief of staff in the White House Counsel's office and served on President Biden's presidential commission on the Supreme Court. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the rise of anti-Semitism and the role that conspiracy theories play in our politics. use your money Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mike Rothschild, who's a journalist and conspiracy theory expert, whose work has examined scams, frauds, moral panic, conspiracy theories, and how how their impact has gone from the online world into everyday life. He has testified to Congress on the threat of election disinformation and is the author of The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult and conspiracy theories of everything. And his latest book just out is Jewish Space Lasers, the Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike.
2: Thank you for having
0: me. Well, thanks for joining us, Mike. And in 2018, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who incidentally is now holding up the entire U.S. government along with four of her Freedom Caucus cohorts, So she's had an outsized influence, shall we say. But in 2018, she took to social media and shared her suspicions that the California wildfires were started by, quote, space solar generators, which were funded by powerful, mysterious interests. And then that sort of morphed into Jewish space lasers, did it not? And also, somehow, George Soros got swept into this conspiracy. So what happened? So
2: in 2018, you started seeing conspiracy theories about this spate of wildfires in California being started by uh, directed energy weapons, these, these space-based lasers that were burning land away for whatever reason. And Marjorie Taylor Greene in 2018 was not a member of Congress. She was just a private citizen who liked CrossFit and uh, liked conspiracy theories. And she posted this, this uh, post on Facebook alleging this extremely convoluted plot between Pacific Gas and Electric uh, then Governor Jerry Brown, the husband of Senator Dianne Feinstein, a bunch of other companies to to essentially burn away land for a high-speed rail project. And one of the people she implicated was a board member of Pacific Gas and Electric, who was also a vice president at Rothschild Inc. And isn't that interesting? Of course, she never used the phrase Jewish space laser. She never said the word Jewish. But by invoking Rothschild Inc., she was speaking to an audience who was very small at that point, who would know exactly what she was talking about and exactly why she used it.
0: But the book is largely about how these Christian conspiracy theories that the Jewish elite has been led by the Rothschild family, and that somehow that there's something wrong with wealthy Jews having money, and uh, the Rothschilds, of course, have been the source of decades or centuries actually of, of these canards and conspiracies. So what is it about this fear of Jewish wealth, this idea that somehow Jewish wealth is not legitimate?
2: There is a feeling in a number of, uh, of conservative communities and also far left communities that there's a, a global cabal in control of everything, that there's a secret room where the leaders of the of the secret order meet and decide who is gonna win the war and who's gonna be rich and who's gonna be poor. And the, the feeling is that this group is somehow leveraged or controlled by Jewish wealth. And there's a number of different names for these groups of Jewish families. You'll get the Committee of 300, the Council of 13, all these different names. And at the very top of them is the most visible and most powerful of these wealthy Jewish families, which for several centuries has been the Rothschilds. And there is a grain of truth to some of this. The Rothschilds were extremely powerful. They were uh, one of the wealthiest families in the world in the early 1800s. That time has long since passed. They've long been used or by other families, and the amount of power and control the Rothschilds have now is essentially nil.
0: Well, they never got much traction in the United States, did they?
2: They didn't. And this was one of the things that really surprised me in writing the book, was no member of the third or fourth generation of the Rothschilds really wanted to come to America. They felt it was too far away. It was, it was too much of a backwater. They were also confounded by the differences between state laws, federal laws, local laws. At that time in the first half of the 1800s, the Rothschilds were essentially who prime ministers would go to, who royalty would go to when they needed a large amount of money for something. If they needed to fight a war, if they needed to make a large land purchase, you went to Rothschild, Rothschild would loan you the money. It was very personal. They, they didn't have anything like that in America. So their business was essentially done by agents in the employ of the family who would very often use the name for their own purposes.
0: But nevertheless, over the centuries and decades, the Rothschilds have been blamed for everything from sinking the Titanic to causing the Great Depression and even more recently creating the COVID-19 pandemic.
2: Yes. uh, Essentially, anytime there is an unexplainable world event, even if it is completely explainable, the, the Rothschilds are somehow blamed for it. Even if they had nothing to do with it, they had no involvement whatsoever. And I think the Federal Reserve conspiracy is a great example. The Rothschilds had nothing to do with creating the Federal Reserve in the United States. But over and over, this particular family is somehow blamed for its creation and its vast power to control global finance. And it's all just nonsense.
0: And do you want to do a disclaimer, Mark? I'm oh sure, man.
2: I'm surprised. Surprised it's taken this long. I am. Uh, I'm not related to the Rothschild family, uh, and I write about this quite a bit at the end of the book. My my father's side of the family comes from a completely different part of Germany. Uh, they emigrated to the Midwest, and of course, the banking Rothschilds didn't emigrate to the U.S. That's one of the problems with their business. But I, despite having the same last name, I, there's no relation whatsoever, which uh, gets me a lot of interesting comments on the internet.
1: right
0: well you grew up in pretty modest circumstances i take it
2: oh yeah i uh you know my my father's family was just another german jewish family that was heading west searching for the american dream and um you know they've they've carved out their own way they've done quite well um they're not the frankfurt rothschilds and i have a family history that sort of talks about the differences but also the similarities you know Mm -hmm. i think in the rothschilds of frankfurt many Jews saw an aspirational story, a, a story of what you could be if you worked hard enough and you really put your mind and your family unity at, to the test. And and that side of the Rothschild story has really gotten lost. And I really wanted to tell that story in the book.
0: Right. Well, again, these crazy conspiracies live on in spite of the change in history and the fact that the Rothschild family have you know, receded into the background compared to some of the rich and powerful today, like Amazon's Jeff Bezos, and also, of course, Elon Musk, who is often referred to as the world's richest person. If he's not, he's the second richest, but the point is that he is, like Henry Ford, indulging in these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. I mean, he's blaming the, the ADL for the 50% drop in revenues, advertising revenues, for Twitter, which it which Musk has ruined, but not the ADL.
2: Well, there, there is a long tradition of blaming the Jews in general or particular Jewish people or families or organizations on, for, for personal business failures, global business failures. I write about how uh, the Nazis of the early 30s personally blamed the Vienna Rothschild branch for the economic contagion going around the world because one of the first banks to fail was a Rothschild-owned bank. That That's a very, that's a very long and, and rich tradition that somebody like Musk is tapping into. And I get asked a lot if I think Musk is anti-Semitic, and I have no idea. I, I don't know how he personally feels. I would imagine there's a public version of him and a private version, but I do know that he is using anti-Semitic tropes. He is speaking the language that anti-Semites will respond to by blaming supposedly powerful and influential Jews for his own failure, he he knows what he's doing when he does that. But whether or not he personally has animosity toward Jews, he is projecting an image that says he does.
0: Right. Well, the other character though that's out there as well who's doing terrible damage is none other than RFK Jr., Robert Kennedy Jr., who's running for president on the Democratic side, He was on Alex Jones a little while back spouting all kinds of anti-Semitic nonsense and saying that the COVID-19 was genetically engineered to spare Ashkenazi Jews, the implication being that the Jews engineered it to protect themselves while everybody else died of COVID. And of course, Alex Jones was also recycling the Rothschild-Waterloo narrative that the Rothschilds made a fortune out of early news of uh, Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo. So this is like a contagion that you can't stamp out. What gives this virus, this poison, such a lifespan?
2: Well, I think it has such a lifespan because it has had such a lifespan. I know that feels a little bit circular, but these myths and and tropes and conspiracy theories about Jews, you know, doing everything under the sun to keep good christian working men down they're recycled from generation to generation and they work every time there's always going to be a group of people who needs a scapegoat needs somebody to blame for what is going wrong in the world and for centuries for millennia that scapegoat has been the organized jewish community you know when when rfk junior is talking about uh the covid-19 virus sparing jewish people he's basically recycling a version of the canard that Jews are disease vectors, they are the plague carriers, everywhere they go is misery and they're rootless and disloyal. These are the same canards the Nazis used in their propaganda films. I'm not saying RFK Jr. is a Nazi. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how he feels about these things, but he is again, like Musk, he's speaking the language of people who absolutely do believe this. And he's he has no problem saying it. He knows there won't be any repercussions because this stuff Works over and over and over again.
0: But you wonder why, uh, you know, over the centuries, nobody has pointed out the obvious, which is that there are a lot of poor Jews. I mean, uh, the shtetl, for example. The, you know, Jews have come from very impoverished communities. Um, the, the the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. If I was a rich man, I mean, sure. what 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 more evidence do you, do you need that, you know, Jews are now better off than most people?
2: Well, uh, you know, we know that, and, and that has proven itself out over and over, that not all Jews are wealthy and powerful. Most Jews aren't wealthy and powerful because most people aren't wealthy and powerful. But when you have a certain narrative in your mind— Everything is evidence that that proves that narrative, and evidence against that narrative is just simply more proof that the narrative is real. There's a strain in conspiracy theorists' thought that families like the Rothschilds aren't real Jews, that they that they don't, they're not actually of the Jewish bloodline, uh, and that even other Jews, the, you know, the, the Jews who are at the bottom should hate the Rothschilds for their uh, hoarding of resources and the damage they've done to the Jewish community through their you know, funding of both sides of every war. And this stuff is, is hateful nonsense. But it, it is very impactful when you get it from a number of different sources, when it's printed in very slick looking books, and you see it in very well produced videos, it starts to change the way you think about a certain people. And no amount of evidence, no amount of, of proof or, or stories from people who've lived in those worlds can get through to you to change your mind.
0: So, Mike, in the last few minutes, though, I wanted to turn the conversation to to what is a clear and present danger, and that is the possible re-election of Donald Trump, who is a fascist. I mean, he loves Nazis. He, ha- he spent Thanksgiving with this Kanye West, who brought along this young American Nazi, who's an unabashed Nazi. So what are you doing sitting down on the great American holiday with Kanye West, who went on Alex Jones and spouted the most ridiculous and disgusting anti Semitic tropes, and this other, f- you know, full fledged Nazi. And the Nazis are coming back in the form of Donald Trump. And I know, you know, the word fascist is thrown around liberally and often irresponsibly, but it definitely applies to Trump. So the greatest anti Semite of all I think was Adolf Hitler. And he's coming back in the form of Donald Trump. So we have a serious problem on our hands.
2: We have a huge problem. We have a huge problem with the visibility that somebody like Trump brings to these kinds of ideas and the acceptability that he brings to these ideas. The thing that really attracted so many people to Trump early on you know, in 2015, early 2016, was he says the things that the rest of us are just thinking. He has the courage to to speak the truth and not fear the the liberal Jew censors and all that other stuff. And so he's emboldened these people. He's emboldened these people to say the worst possible things, to profit off the worst possible things, to build personas off saying these things, to introduce these ideas to the public. And Trump loves the attention he gets from these people. He loves how much they love him. And of course, one of the things I write about in the book is Trump has connections to the Rothschild family. It was Rothschild Inc.'s bankruptcy man, Wilbur Ross, who bailed out the Trump Taj Mahal in the early 90s, saved, you know, saved him from bankruptcy in, in Atlantic City. And these are things you never hear about from Trump's alt-right fan base. They just they, they love him. They love what he represents and they love his openness to blaming who they think should be blamed for all of the world's problems, which is the Jews.
0: So is it fair to say then that he has given them oxygen? I mean, remember at the Charlottesville Tiki Torch Mast, he was the one that uh, refused to condemn the anti-Semites and white supremacists who were chanting, the Jews will not replace us. And of course he said there were good people on both sides. And uh, that's always been inexplicable. So why does Trump protect this constituency as opposed to Condemn it.
2: Well, he protects them because they're his people, and they love him, and he—he uh, he is their champion, and together they have achieved what nobody had ever done. You know, a person with no political experience, no military experience, became president of the United States based off of conspiracy theories, based off of far right trolls harassing people. And these 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 two groups, you know, the Trump inner circle and this, you know, this alt right group that blew up in Charlottesville, they are inexorably connected to each other. They need each other, and you know, they Trump gives these people cover, public acceptability, and of course, they give Trump the the worship that he requires as an autocrat.
0: And what's the role of QAnon in this whole thing? You wrote the book, The Storm. The storm is upon us. How QAnon became a movement, cult, and conspiracy theories of everything.
2: Well, QAnon was another manifestation of the these group of, of people who just basically worship Trump, who think that he is a is an all-knowing genius and a strategist who thinks 12 steps ahead of everybody else, and that you know Trump was going to use them as, as his instrument to clear away the deep state and the the pedophile rings and the un-American saboteurs who have plagued western life for thousands of years and of course juanon is full of anti-semitic tropes it's full of references to soros and the rothschild and all these other jewish families you know it's it's all part of the same message which is trump is going to make the bad people go away and if you support trump you will become like trump one day you will be triumphant and it's a very powerful message to people who feel like mainstream america has been denigrating them for a long time well Mainstream America has been denigrating them because a lot of them are racists and anti-Semitic.
0: Right. Well, the deep state thing has really got traction, you know, not just amongst QAnon, but amongst the MAGA people in general, right? And Trump uses that phrase all the time.
2: Yeah, Trump uses that phrase that the deep state is coming after him. And, of course, that this idea of the deep state is not new. Trump did not invent the idea of a secret hidden government that's you know, full of bureaucrats working against free people. You you can find similar things in the concept of the New World Order, the Illuminati. Uh, You get names like the, the, you know, the Front Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, Bilderberg Group, Trilateral Commission. In the 1800s, they're called the Super Governments, the Insiders. It's all just recycling the same ideas that there is some powerful, shadowy group who is really running things. And of course, who is funding that group? It's the Jews.
0: So just in closing then, what uh, can we do here? I don't want to keep reinforcing despair. Obviously, I keep pointing out that this election coming up in 2024 may well be the last election for American democracy before the fascists take over. And that's certainly sounding an alarm. But in the short term, what strategies are there?
2: Well, I think the strategies that that we can pursue in our own lives is to really understand what these terms mean. What it what it means when somebody like Elon Musk blames the ADL for Twitter losing half its value. He's he's using anti-Semitic language and it's coded so that he can say, Well, I'm not an anti-Semite, I just have a problem with the ADL. But you you see that phrasing over and over in these materials i don't hate jews it's just these jews it's the powerful jews it's the wealthy jews right. so we can understand what those words mean we can understand those codes and I, we can call them out in right. in our own lives and in the lives of people we know
0: right and my son in law is a jew right
2: it's, yeah right that's exactly.
0: trump's, trump's excuse right well i thank you for joining us mike i appreciate it thank you very much And again, I've been speaking with Mike Rothschild, who is a journalist and conspiracy theory expert, whose work has examined scams, frauds, moral panic, conspiracy theories, and how their impact has gone from the online world into everyday life. He has testified to Congress on the threat of election disinformation and is the author of The Storm is Upon Us, how QAnon became a movement, cult, and conspiracy theory of everything. And his latest book just out is Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. We're we'll take a brief station break and back to look into the hack of 60,000 emails from the State Department, along with emails from the Secretary of Commerce, and assess the state of the government's cybersecurity. If I were a rich man, dum, all day long I bidi bidi dum. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. <audio> if I were a bit bit rich, idle, diddle, 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 man, I feel... Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Herb Lin, who is a Senior Research Scholar for Cyber Policy and Security at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He is the Chief Scientist Emeritus for the Computer Science and Telecommunications Board at the National Research Council of the National Academies, and in 2016 served on President Obama's Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity. He was also a professional staff member and staff scientist for the House Armed Services Committee, where his portfolio included defense policy and arms control issues. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Herb Lin. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Herb. And what do you make of the information that's now coming from the State Department, who apparently talked to some Senate staff members revealing the scope of a recent hack, uh, presumably by China, of the State Department, where the hackers stole 60,000 State Department emails. And, of course, there was also a hack of the email accounts of the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo.
3: Um, from my standpoint as a cybersecurity person, not surprising uh, in the sense that... Uh, you will be everybody is vulnerable to being hacked no matter how much work they put into it okay so um, uh, the uh, you me everybody um, any organization and, and and so on if the other guy uh, if the bad guy is willing to put enough resources and time and money uh, into into hacking you uh, you might ask, well, why doesn't the government you know, sort of tighten up its cybersecurity? And the answer is it does. Okay? Um, what, that, what tightening up your cybersecurity does means, though, is that it just takes the bad guy longer to get in. Okay? So instead of hearing about it once every – you know, I'm making up the numbers, right? Once every two weeks, uh, you'll, you you know, it'll take, you know, two months before they get in. Um, that's clearly a good thing, right? Um, but it means that if you're looking on the outside, all you see is that, well, they got hacked. You know, they they just got hacked again, and you remember what happened two months ago, and you don't think about the fact, well, it could have happened. You know, three or four times if they hadn't tightened up cybersecurity. So it's a it, it's a really tough problem. There's nothing there's nothing that you can do to make yourself completely invulnerable. You can only make it harder for the bad guy, and, and that's just the reality of cybersecurity uh, these days.
0: But apparently, these hackers used a stolen Microsoft certificate to penetrate the State uh-huh. Department's email accounts, and, and apparently, the Biden administration is also admitting that stolen Microsoft certificate was used to hack 25 organizations and government agencies. So explain what a Microsoft certificate is. What is okay, well, a certificate uh, is something that,
3: uh, let's say it's a Microsoft certificate, only Microsoft should have it. And what happens is that Microsoft uses this certificate to certify uh, that, for example, a software update that they send into your machine is valid and legitimate. Okay, so you you, you know that if you're one if you're running a Windows machine, uh, there's a, a security update, and you have to click a button. And then, it, how do you know that that's a legitimate? How do you know that that's a legitimate um, uh, update from Microsoft, or and not from from China, for example? Now, that's a good question. The answer is supposed to be Microsoft signs the Quote signs uh, the update with a uh, with, with a uh, with its certificate, uh, and then you can, and then your computer verifies that this is indeed from Microsoft. Okay, so it's like having the um, you know a special stamp uh, that you have that only you have and only you can you control, and you stamp a document, and then anybody else who looks at that document knows it really came from you. Okay. But what if I happen to steal, the, you know, what if I steal your stamp or make a copy of it? Okay. Then, you know, then the stamp doesn't mean so much. And that's, you know, that's what happened here. Wherever the hackers were, they were able to get their hands on a Microsoft certificate, a genuine Microsoft certificate. Uh, and that's why. And they, they stole it. Um, and then they were able to use it to sign uh, code, an update uh, that enabled them to do bad things. So that's what the that's what the significance of this is,
0: right? But how easy is it to steal a Microsoft certificate? It would seem to me that this is a an entry into all kinds of uh, systems. Uh, you'd think they'd be closely Absolutely. guarded.
3: you would dig that, and they are close. They're in, they are in fact closely guarded.
0: But again, it's not perfect. Well, Herb, one of the things I find extraordinary is, and of course, you know the the accusations now. Uh, suggesting that it was uh, hackers working for the Chinese government, the Chinese mm-hmm. government hacked into the Office of Personnel Management uh, several years ago, and got the mm-hmm. basically got the resumes of everybody in the intelligence business and in the in the military and in the government service. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing, Mine too, trove, that's right. amazing trove, amazing yeah. trove of secrets. So you'd think that's after correct. that, they the government would have got its act together and made sure that didn't happen again.
3: Well, and it didn't happen again for a long time, and now it's happened again. I mean, not not the same thing, but you know, now the government's been you know been hacked again, and of course the government's been hacked a whole bunch of times in between that too. I mean, as they say, it's impossible to keep it from ever happening. The only thing you can do is to delay it, because the because the stakes are so high that they you know the, that the bad guy uh, always you know has an incentive to keep on trying.
0: Well, the ba- yeah, I
3: don't know how, that. for example, I don't know how they got the stolen certificate, okay? Maybe they were able to bribe somebody and instead of, you know, before um, $10,000 wasn't enough and now they raised it to a million dollars, okay? Maybe, you know, they, that might have gotten, you know, a, a different response. I mean, it's that kind of thing.
0: You keep on trying until you succeed. Right. Well, apparently the, the, government is, the U.S. government is saying that Chinese hackers did indeed gain access to the email accounts of Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, uh-huh. Now that would have okay. clearly been an ad- advantage, right, in trade talks, to to be able it to read. On,
3: it depends. I don't right. It it, it depends. It, they only, as uh, as I understood it, they only got into the unclassified version mm-hmm. of her email. Right. Um, now, if if that, you know, there, there there's a classified version which nobody yet has reported that they've uh, that they've that, that's been compromised. Um, now who knows whether or not uh she disclosed sensitive information on her unclassified email. I don't know the I don't you know I don't know the answer to that. She shouldn't be no. um and you know you, you you know you should only be saying uh you know hi honey what's for dinner tonight on 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 unclassified uh email. But even that kind of information can be you know can be used against you.
0: Sure but, um, but, but so it's it's discussing your negotiating strategies with your top aides that's that's not classified uh, necessarily.
3: Well, maybe it should. Well, that's right. It may or may not be. I think that's right. I think you you don't know and I don't know whether or not that sort of stuff, uh, they treat it as classified or not. I mean, there are a lot of people who say that the government classifies too much information. Well, I mean, declassify your discussions with your top aides uh, about uh, trade talks or not. Um, some people would say yes, you should classify them. I would say that you should. I would say you should classify that, um, but um, you know, the, the, the depends on the sensitivity of it and so on.
0: Right. Well, I guess though, if this is a unit of the Chinese Communist government, apparently the military has set up units. Uh, what? Do you, how mm-hmm. familiar are you with the the weaponization of of cyber? Attacks from the Chinese Communist government's military, or the People's Liberation Army, I guess. I don't know exactly what do they call themselves. I've heard all kinds of acronyms. Well, there, there,
3: they're, there are they're right. There, there are a variety of different. There are a variety of different uh, agencies within China that have some responsibility for cyber stuff. Um, and uh, if you know otherwise, tell me. But I don't know that this has been traced to a particular unit within the Chinese government. It could have been something from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. You could imagine that. It could have been somebody from the Ministry of State Security. It could have been somebody from the PLA. I mean, I think I, I, don't, know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, if you do, then you should tell me. But I don't. I, to the best of my knowledge, that hasn't been determined yet.
0: No, but I, I'm saying that the resources are considerable. This is not some overweight oh, teenager absolutely. in a basement, right?
3: That's correct. Absolutely right. That's, that's absolutely right. Uh, this is not just some random Chinese teen, you know, teenage boy that that, that has too much time on his hands. That's not that. That's right. correct.
0: Well, uh, Gina Raimondo, this Commerce Secretary, she's linked the, this to to China. The government hasn't officially said anything, uh, the Biden administration, uh, mm-hmm. about this hack. But uh, given the okay. history, as we said earlier, with the OPM hack, um, it's not hard to, f- f- you know, point the finger right.
3: Right. I mean, you know, it's, you know, I haven't seen the evidence, so I don't know. Right. But the way you make those determinations is that you ask, what are the patterns? Did it, you know, did did it seem, does it seem like something the Chinese have done before uh, that in terms of the techniques? um, Did it come from places in China that we, that we know have hackers in that, you know, that kind of question. Okay. And I haven't seen any of the evidence, but somebody, you know, somebody's done an analysis and, and concluded it comes from China.
0: So now, of course, we're hearing the same refrain we've heard before, that we need to harden our defenses against these types of cyber attacks mm-hmm. and intrusions in the future. And you're saying mm-hmm. that you can do stuff, but it becomes obsolete? Is that, is that you, what you tell, told us? Not, not, it's not so much. It, it, it's not so much obsolete.
3: It's that that modern software has so many vulnerabilities in it that you can, that there's always another one to find. And as I say, what you can do is you can make something take longer to get into, but you won't be able to to, to keep them out forever.
0: So then, what would you recommend the government do? I mean, uh, you served on President Obama's Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity.
3: We right. We made you know what we did. Is we we made a variety of recommendations. We didn't think that it was going to solve the problem completely. Um, nobody you know would, would imagine that anything would solve the problem. But you can make it harder.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So for example, you could make it easier. You, one of the things you could do that we recommended, for example, um, is that we shouldn't rely on users to make decisions about security. OK, um, so, you, you know, if you ask people, what password do you want? What they'll do is they'll, they want a password that's easy to remember um, and easy to enter. So they want a short password that, you know, like, you know, like one, two, three. Mm-hmm. OK, I mean, you know, my, I remember my father's first password He's long dead now. My father's first password was one, two, three, four, five. And when I said, no, no, you have to make it more complicated. He said, OK, fine. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. <laughs>
0: I mean, <laughs> right. I loved my dad, but that, you know, that's the way he thought about it. Right. Well, I, listen, I'm sympathetic about forgetting. I'm sympathetic, forgetting. too. I, I, I keep forgetting passwords right and left. It just makes me crazy. That's right. So that's right. so you, the tendency is to want to make them simple so you can remember them. Dr. Herblin, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Okay. Hopefully hope this was helpful. It was helpful, indeed. But at the same time, <laughs> the U.S. government remains vulnerable right that's the bottom line
3: well that's well we're all vulnerable yeah. and, and and you know you, you it's only are you more vulnerable or less vulnerable and, and the, you know it's fair to say that the government's getting less vulnerable right.
1: um
3: but that's not to say that it's getting it's it's invulnerable that's not to say that so you know if you get if you get a rep, you know you have to ask yourself is it are you getting better if it takes you know a year in between hacks rather than a month between hacks and i'd say the answer is yes mm-hmm. um but then, of course, if it happens every year, then people will try to criticize the government every
0: year. Right. Well, I again, I thank you for joining us. And Dr. Herb Lynn is a senior research scholar for cyber policy and security at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He's also the chief scientist emeritus for the Computer Science and Telecommunication Board at the National Research Council of the National Academies. And in 2016, he served on President Obama's Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity. And was also a professional staff member and staff scientist for the House Armed Services Committee, where his portfolio included defense policy and arms control issues. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lives next door in
3: 305.